Well, good morning, Genesis Church. It's uh, great to see such an awesome crowd on this uh, first fall break weekend. I know for Noblesville schools, and uh, if you're new today, we want to welcome you here with us. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis, and I want to take a moment just right at the top uh, to give you a quick update. I know that many of you maybe heard that uh, my sister and brother-in-law were in a pretty serious car accident last weekend. I know Ben mentioned that here from the stage, and I just want to report to you that they're they're doing well and recovering at home. Uh, I want to thank you for your prayers. My sister's going to have uh, surgery on her wrist uh, Tuesday, and uh, my brother-in-law is recovering too. He had a pretty serious concussion, and uh, been some slow recovery there for them. And they've got three young kids, and so uh, just the challenge of recovering and also taking care of their family. But thankfully, my parents live there uh, in central Illinois with them. They've got a great church that they're a part of. But uh, thanks again for your support and prayers. You know, when we got a call last Saturday afternoon, uh, there was some uncertainty, really, of my brother-in-law's condition uh, as he was unresponsive at the scene. And so for Jenny and I and our family, it was just that instant kind of what are we supposed to do? What should we do? And so one of the first things that I did was called Ben Krause and uh, just talked to him for a moment and just kind of explained the situation. And, you know, I'm supposed to preach tomorrow. I don't know what to do. And I just appreciate Ben who immediately said, you go be with your family. You go take care uh, of your family right now. And he goes, I'll preach tomorrow. And uh, so I sure appreciate Ben. I know he did a fantastic fantastic job last week. So uh, again, thank you for your support and prayers in that, Ben. Thanks for your friendship and uh, leadership and help. and uh, sure, sure do appreciate it. But hey, we got a lot to cover today. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Second Peter uh, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles around the room, it's page 853 uh, towards the end of the New Testament. As you're turning there, I've got some friends uh, who are the recent victims of identity theft. And uh, since they own their own business and websites, uh, the way it went is that the person hacked into their, their websites. From there, he got their email email addresses, uh, started tracking every move of theirs on the computer. Uh, He got their bank account information. He eventually got access to their credit card information. Uh, From what they can tell, it appears that this person tracked them for over a year. Uh, Then in one day, in one moment, he changed their passwords on all their websites, their bank accounts, and email addresses, withdrew money from all of them, and then started establishing uh, these new accounts in their names. Now, the money was replaced. All right, and uh, they're thankful for that. Uh, But although it was pretty inconvenient, uh, that wasn't the worst part. All right, the worst part for them, and if you've ever gone through anything like this in your life, you know the hardest part has been rebuilding their identity. All right, trying to prove that they are who they are and say they are, almost from the ground up. And so they've had to go to all of these different organizations and fight to secure their identity, again, to prove who they are. And I just want you to imagine uh, for yourself just a moment, some of you don't have to think too hard because maybe you've been through something like this, that you've got to prove who you are. All right, that you've got to do the work, all right, to build your identity again from the ground up. I mean, what if you woke up like Jason Bourne one day, you know, and uh, you don't know who you are anymore? Where, where would you go uh, in a moment like that if you need some help? Well, that's part of what we're going to talk about today. And the video explained just a moment ago as we continue in this series that we've been in here at Genesis called Profile. Uh, and in case you're new with us today, we've been talking these last three weeks and asking this question, uh, what, what, are the mature, what, what are the characteristics of a mature disciple of Jesus Christ? Or put another way, uh, we might say, you know, what's it look like to live a successful Christian life? And our key verse from this series uh, comes right out of the Gospels, John 15, verse 8. All right, these are 
are the words of Jesus. Uh, he's getting very close to his death, but at the very end of his ministry, he says these words, John 15, verse 8, he says uh, to, to his disciples, he says, this is to my Father's glory. Basically, here's what gets God's attention, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And it's from this that we have formed what we're calling here at Genesis, the profile. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today, but it's really important. And I hope that if you've missed any of the last few weeks, that you'll take some time. You'll go back and look and listen to each of our podcasts, all right, because they're really important uh, foundation for what we believe that God wants to do in each of us, all right, and also a really important foundation or even direction for where we believe that God is leading us as a church. These are the things that we want to chase after together, really make a priority as a church in the years to come. And uh, just to give you a brief outline of that, we've been uh, kind of telling this story using this slide here. Again, our profile of a mature disciple. Uh, we've said that from John 15, 8, we can see that a mature disciple is following Jesus, all right? That, that, that you've set your heart, you've set your life, all right, the course and saying, I want to follow Jesus in everything that I do, that we seek to bring glory to God in, in everything. And finally, a mature disciple or a successful Christian is bearing much fruit, that we're growing in these areas, all right, that are going to be visible to other people. And so two weeks ago, Kevin was here and he talked about what it means to follow Jesus or to stay relationally connected to him. And last week, Ben talked about what it means to bring glory to God uh, and, and to make that the aim of your life. All right, to make that the goal, to make that the target we go after. And so for the last four weeks of this series, we want to talk now what, about what it means to bear fruit, all right? And specifically, when Jesus said this, he went on to clarify just a few verses later in John 15, verse 16. He says, here's what I've done for you. He says, I've appointed you. Uh, basically, he says, I, I've ordained you or uh, put you into commission, all right, as the word means, so that you might go and bear fruit and then he says, fruit that will last. And so this is an eternal kind of fruit that Jesus is thinking about. It's a visible fruit that has eternal implications. And why is this so important? Well, because Jesus said that you can tell a tree, all right, by the fruit that it bears. And while fruit is an external thing, it, it therefore is visible to other people. It's an indication, really, of what's on the inside. I mean, think about this. I mean, an apple tree will never produce pears, all right? A, a walnut tree won't produce peaches, all right? The, the DNA that's in the fruit, all right, determines the kind of tree that it comes from. And so if we're going to collectively make disciples, if we're going to answer this call, if we're going to follow this commission by Jesus to make disciples, well, we're going to reproduce who we are. And so when Jesus says, bear fruit that will last, all right, that, that's my commission, that's your commission. What he's saying is that you're going to reproduce who you are, and so make sure you're reproducing those things that God wants you to produce. Or you could say it like this. That's why God wants to do something in you before he reproduces something through you. And so what we've been up to, our teaching team, uh, over the past years, we've been looking through the New Testament and just trying to identify areas where we see that God speaks about fruitfulness and what it means to grow in this fruit. And we believe that we've identified four specifically uh, that are noted in the New Testament. And these are consistent. These are things that Jesus talks about over and over again. These are things that we see the Apostle Paul talking about and what churches are praying for in the New Testament. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, we see all four of them come together. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, let's take a look there. Peter uh, is writing to Christians, all right? The Apostle Peter, he spent time with Jesus. He was discipled by Jesus. 
All right, and so he's writing to Christians and he's praying that they will grow in these four fundamental areas that we begin with today. Second Peter chapter one, uh, let's start in verse five. Peter writes this. He says, for, for this very reason, and if we just stop there for a moment, what reason is that? What's he referring to? Well, you've got to look back a couple of verses to verse three where he says that it's his divine power. He's speaking about God. He's speaking about the Father that has given us everything that we need in life. All right, and godliness. Peter's saying, hey, have you ever wondered what God wants to do in you? You know, have you ever had questions about your purpose, all right, and your direction and what God wants to produce through your life or what your next steps are? Peter says, hey, listen up. Here's what they are. Here are these next steps for you. Look again. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. Basically, be active, all right? You're gonna you have to be active in your pursuit of these things. He says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. Again, he's talking about these things that we grow into. This is a process, all right, of growing up and of bearing fruit as followers of Christ. He says, into godliness, mutual affection, into mutual affection, love. And then he says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says, but whoever does not have them, is nearsighted, blind, forgetting, meaning we can get lost. We can come into these places in our life where we're not growing anymore. He says, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Now, just keep your place there in your Bible, if you will, for just a moment. Again, this is one of the few passages that really contain all four of the fruits that we want to highlight. But I want you to know that they're plastered all over the Bible. And we'll look at those other examples uh, in weeks to come. And so let's pick them out if we can. Again, we're calling these the four eyes, all right? These are four fundamental areas that we want to grow into or grow in as mature disciples of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a kid. It doesn't matter whether you're a student or an adult, how long you've been doing this. Each of us, we want to grow into these things. We want to set these as the target that we aim for in our life and in our growth. The first eye is this, it's identity. We're going to talk about this today. Uh, Peter says here in this, the, these words that we looked at just a moment ago, he says, whoever doesn't have these things, all right, has lost sight of what God has done for them in Jesus. Basically, you've forgotten who you are, all right? You forget who you are. Therefore, growing in these things is important to you and to your identity. See, identity is knowing who you are in Jesus Christ and that confidence in him and in that truth. Next week, we're gonna talk about intimacy, all right? And Peter says that you should add knowledge, all right? We read that just a moment ago. He's talking about knowledge of God. He's talking about growing in our understanding of God. He also says mutual affection. Again, these are what we're going to call intimacy. That is intimacy with God and the intimacy that we have with others, other followers of Christ. In two weeks, we're gonna talk about integrity. Peter says that we should grow in self-control. He says we should grow in things like perseverance and godliness. Again, these are signs of integrity. Integrity is growing in character, all right, to be more like Jesus. It means the same on the inside and on the outside. It's more than just being skin thick, you know, when it comes to our commitment to Christ. We're the same on the inside and the outside. And then we'll wrap up in a few weeks with the fourth eye, which is influence. And Peter says, if, if you're going to grow in these things, all right, they're going to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your relationship with Jesus, which means then that if you're growing in these, well, you're going to be found productive and you're going to be found effective and you're going to be able to influence others and you're going to be able to make a great difference in this kingdom and make disciples who make disciples. 
And so again, we said that week one, uh, that the four eyes, all right, are fundamentals for us. All right, these are fundamentals that we're going after. They're not everything that you need to know, but these are the areas that we want to be learning in. These are the areas that we want to be growing in. We've compared it to playing basketball before. You know, that when it comes down to playing basketball, there's lots of ways that you can improve in order to get greater at the game of basketball. But if you're always working on the fundamentals, if you're always working on your shooting, if you're always working on your passing and your rebounding and your defense and your dribbling, you will continually become a better basketball player. I don't know if you know or saw the article that was growing around this past week, but it was uh, the Pacers, Paul George, uh, who told local media that he was ready to challenge LeBron James as the greatest basketball uh, player. And of course, the national media picked up on this story and these words. And But the first thing that I thought is like, what's he doing? What's he working on to get better then? Because the biggest mistake that we make is that we sometimes confuse the desire to accomplish something, all right, with without working on the skills, all right, to get to the desire that we ultimately crave. And so desire makes us want to get better, all right, but working on the skills is what paves the way for us to get better. And so consider Peter's words for you. Let's do that for each of us. Let's consider these words for ourselves. I mean, what does it mean for you when he encourages you to make every effort? Peter says, make every effort to grow in your faith, and not because you've got to prove yourself to Jesus, We don't have to do that. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. That's not the case here. But what we want to see is that we do have, you have some responsibility when it comes to your own personal faith and your own personal growth. And so... Let's talk today about the first of the four eyes. If you're taking notes, if you've got a, a notes page with you, we're talking about identity. Today, I asked the question earlier, where would you go to rebuild your identity? I mean, if something happened that made you question who you are, uh, where, where would you go to discover an answer to a question like that? How would you figure that out? Well, do you realize before we go any farther that uh, we've got reason to believe that Jesus was challenged by this very same question too? Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. I mean, he was born to a family we know. He was born to Joseph and Mary, the son of a carpenter. Uh, he grew up in a very small town in Israel called Nazareth. And because it was a small town, it's likely that the whole town knew that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Now, 2,000 years later, we've got the benefit, all right, of knowing the whole story. But uh, back then, only Joseph and Mary, you know, knew the story. And so you can imagine what the, what the whole town thought. And they probably talked. And there was probably lots of talking his whole life there. In fact, Psalm 69 predicted this of Jesus, all right? If you look at Psalm 69, it predicted that he would be a stranger to his brothers. It talks about how he would be mocked by all the people at the town, at the gates of the town, that he would be the song of the drunkards. I mean, so imagine, imagine if that's the case. Imagine what the early life of Jesus was really like as a child. Now imagine this. All right, he's 30 years old, all right, ready to be baptized. The scriptures describe how the clouds open, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven rings out, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Can you imagine the impact those words had on Jesus and his life and really a confirmation of his identity? Well, Scripture says that he immediately left there. He spent 40 days in the wilderness where Satan tempted him. And as he was being tempted, what did Jesus do to defend himself? I mean, he used Scripture. He he turned to Scripture to rebuke Satan. I mean, do you remember this? You can read all about it in Matthew chapter 4. 
And here's what we know, here's what we see, that he comes out of this event, all right, even more confident in his identity. In fact, the first, two, the first interaction that we see with Jesus out of the wilderness, Jesus convinces his first two followers that he is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And how is his identity shaped? Well, we're left to draw the conclusion that Jesus spent these 40 days in the wilderness meditating on Scripture, that that's where his identity was really established. That's where his identity was confirmed and how he became confident in it. And I just want to point out for you and me and for all of us today, the same is true for us today. If you're taking notes uh, and you want to write this down, there, there is only one source for confirming your identity. There is only one source of truth for us today, and that is that if you want to grow in your identity today, you've got to meditate on Scripture. We have to look to Scripture Uh, We have to look to God's word and what he has to say for us and about us. To meditate on his scripture and on his word means to think about it. Uh, It means to chew on it. It means to consider it for every circumstance of life. Psalm 1 says it this way. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Now get this, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He's speaking of scripture here today. He's speaking of what we know as God's word today. Look what he says next. And who meditates, again, fills his mind or fills her mind on his law day and night. And then look at the promise, look at the realization that this person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prosper. See, there's the answer, all right? To bear fruit, you've got to meditate on Scripture. We have to look to the source. Our truth can only come from God's Word. And consider this. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to meditate on Scripture How much more then do we? If we really want to understand who we are and grow in our identity in Christ, the answer is so much more, lots more. Turning to Scripture for our identity, understanding what God has done for us in Jesus, what he thinks of us and what he has planned for our life. And so here's what we've done We've talked before. Uh, Chances are you've heard us talk on a number of occasions about uh, the SOAP method when it comes to studying Scripture. All right, SOAP just simply stands for Scripture. Uh, We identify a a passage of Scripture each day. Uh, The O is for observation, and so in your, your journal, you start making some observations about what you're reading. A is application. All right, what's this mean for me in my life? How might this apply to my day or my current circumstances? And then P is, is the prayer. It's like, okay, I'm going, am I going to pray and invite the Father to do these things, all right, for me and in me and in my life right now? And if you think that's confusing or think, you know what, there's no way that I could ever do something like this, uh, check out this confirmation from a fourth grader or a kindergartner. Check this out. Okay, tell us your name and what grade you're in. Hi, my name is Reagan, and I'm in kindergarten. All right, what are you doing? I'm doing my soap. Soap, what does that mean? Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Okay, what scripture are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at Proverbs chapter 16 and 3 to 4. Okay, what does it say? It says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. What's your observation? It's that 
if you can do your own work, but it might not be established. But if you do what the Lord tells you, then it will be established. What does that mean? That established means that you will get it done. Okay, so what's the application? Application is that I will listen to the Lord and do what he tells me to do. Awesome. And then you're going to write that in your soap journal and also write your prayer? Uh-huh. Very good. Impressive, right? How many of you feel unqualified to be a parent right now? Yes, right? Very impressive, you know? Just kind of a mic drop there. But, uh, but again, I, you know, what we want you to see with this SOAP method, it's just one of many methods, but it's a, a simple and helpful way to meditate on God's Word each day. And anyone can do it. And so here's what we've done for you. We've created a study, a new study. Uh, this is available back at the Info Hub today. It's just one page, uh, but it's for four weeks, uh, the next four weeks. And it's just some selected passages uh, that you can be soaping through on each of these four eyes. And so starting this week with identity and then intimacy and integrity and influence. On the back side is a little bit more detail and explanation for how to use the SOAP method uh, to better study Scripture. I also want you to know that uh, you can go to your Genesis uh, app, and in the weekend section tab, uh, all of this same information is included there as well. But uh, we hope that you'll find this uh, helpful and beneficial as you learn, as we learn together, how to better meditate on Scripture. And why is meditating on Scripture so important? Well, it's because of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And you know what? When you think about it, there are so many forces today. Uh, there are so many opinions. There are so many perspectives out there and in our world right now fighting to convince you and persuade you, and not only you, but your children and your students uh, with all of these different thoughts and all of these different things. Here's what we got to know, and here's the bottom line for us as followers of Jesus, that our true identity will never be found in our skin color. Our, your true identity is not found in your nationality. It's not found in a political party or a political candidate. Uh, your true identity is not found in your career. It's not found in the school that you attend or will attend, that our true identity as followers of Jesus can only be found in Jesus Christ and only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as followers of Jesus, we must find and discover and secure our identity in him, and that's going to be found through Scripture. And we need that now more than ever. All right, and we've got to demonstrate that, all right? And we need to live that as followers of Jesus Christ in this world. And so if Scripture is going to help us, uh, if it's going to help you discover or rediscover your identity, it's probably important to know a little bit about what the, uh, God's Word has for us and what it says about who you are and your identity in Christ. And so these are in your notes. Uh, if you want to follow along, I want to just give you four unchanging truths about your identity in Jesus Christ today. The first one is this, that God created you, all right? That is an unchanging truth and a reality for you in your life, for every single one of us, that you're not an accident, all right? You're not a freak of matter and energy colliding together in the universe. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Christ follower or not. The truth is that God created you. And here's what he says about that truth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. See, the God of the universe, uh, the one who made the stars and the galaxies and the mountains and the oceans, this is the very same God that created you. Think about this. Think about this, men and women, that you are different 
than every other, any other creation in this world. And do you know why? You were made in his image. And even though he created all things, you are the only one that can say that you were created in the image of God. Trees weren't made in his image. All right, fish weren't made in his image. Monkeys weren't made in his image. Doesn't mean these uh, aspects of creation aren't important, but there's only one creation on this earth that was made in the image of God, and it's you. God created you, and he created you in his image, and he just didn't make you as a part of some mass creation or production. He actually spent time on you, and some of you a little bit more than others, but he spent time on you, and he, he created you uniquely and to be different than any other person on the earth. He created you different than any other person that he will ever create. I'm reading this book by a woman named Lois Tverberg uh, entitled Walking in the Dust of the Rabbi Jesus, uh, and she writes this. She said, have you heard the story of Al? All right, he, he was born, or he, she says, he, uh, he hit rock bottom in life at age 22. And in a letter to his sister, he rued the day that he was born, declaring that he was nothing but a burden on his family. Uh, as a youngster, Al had been labeled retarded and taken out of school more than once. Even the family maid referred to him as the dopey one. Uh, after dropping out for a while, Al managed to finish high school, but he couldn't get into tech school, much less college. Now, he needed work badly, but he couldn't get a job to save his life. Finally, a friend's father, Fred Howler, cut Al a break. He gave him a probationary job at the office where he worked, taking a chance that Al wasn't as hopeless and as clueless as everyone thought him to be. And then she writes, but then the late radio commentator, Paul Harvey, some of you might need some help with that and who that person is, but he goes on to explain, and I quote, Al was not inexorably destined to guide lesser minds through intricacies of space and time. In fact, at 22, he stood at the brink of utter uselessness until Fred Haller gave him a chance at the Swiss Federal Patent Office. Inspired by that first success, he learned to live up to his potential and from that beginning came the incomparable genius, Albert Einstein. Paul Harvey, good day. So I'd love to read more, you know, about that story and that experience and the impact that this one man, Fred Haller, had on Albert Einstein's life. He saw something in Albert that no one else was able to see. Listen, you, you may not see anything in yourself. You might find yourself in a place today where you wonder if anything could see anything in you whatsoever. But can I tell you who sees great things in you? God does. Our Father does. And he's a good Father who loves you, and he created you in his image. David understood this. He came to learn this about his identity. He wrote in Psalm 139, verse 14, he says, I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He writes, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of, my earth, of the earth. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body, and even then all the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know, the brain has so many neurons. Scientists have discovered uh, that it has as many, if not more, as the Milky Way has stars. Isn't that incredible? Fascinating to think about. And did you know that most of them were formed before you were ever born, or as the Bible says, in the secret place? And the neurons in your brain are unlike anyone else's. They are unique to you. Can you see why abortion is so tragic? You know, these are children created by God. Every life 
unborn or born matters to God because each life is uniquely made by God. How cool is that? To think that you are uniquely made and created by God, that God spent time thinking about you before you ever came to be on this earth and he thought about what you would be like and he made you different. And so even if your mom ever said words like, I wish you could be more like your brother or something, she was wrong, all right? The answer isn't, was that you weren't supposed to be, all right, like your brother. Even as identical twins, you're different. And I guess you could say this is one area where Dr. Seuss in the Bible actually agree. He was the one that said, today you are you that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. And so it's important that we turn to the Word of God so that we can better understand our identity And when you do, you find that God created you. The second thing in your notes is that God loves you. And that's an unchanging truth and an important part of our identity. And this is also true whether you're a Christian or not, because the fact is that God made you and he loves you. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, that he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. What a great definition of his love, really. That God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but he is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And I know some of you probably today are in a place in your life right now where you can't feel God's compassion or You don't understand that abounding love in your life, maybe because of the circumstances that are happening around you right now, the things that you're hearing otherwise. This this is why it's so important that we meditate on Scripture and that we do this every single day. I mean, even for Jesus, I mean, for 40 days in the wilderness, he had a mortal enemy that was in his face and challenging his identity. And every time, you know, Satan tempted Jesus, you can read him saying, if you are the son, again, the questioning of his identity Notice the words, if you are. And some of you here today, maybe you're hearing similar words or similar language that goes something like this. If God really loves you, then why? Like, why are you going through these things right now? Or if God really loves you or really loves me, then, then why is this marriage not working out the way that I want it to? Or why the divorce? Or if God really loves you, why did you lose that job? Or why are you going through this with your parents right now? Or going through this with a child? Why, why, why? We've, we've all got these questions. All right, let's note that. I mean, when you experience pain and hardship in your life, there are going to be questions, and that's okay, all right? It's natural to have questions, and God is big enough to handle these questions that we ask. But let's be careful in discerning what we're hearing, all right? Because your mortal enemy would love to use these doubts as a wedge right now and to get up in there between you and God and make you question his love and his compassion and to question whether he, what he thinks about you or whether he's really withdrawn his love from you. Look at what the Apostle Paul had to say about, to his friends about the importance of knowing their identity in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, and I pray that you, being rooted, all right, and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This, this is from the Apostle Paul, all right? Formerly known as Saul. I mean, he formerly persecuted the church. He, he, people were murdered on his watch, all right, before he came to Christ. And he hated Jesus, and he hated every person who claimed to follow Jesus. But one day, Jesus got a hold of his life. 
All right, and Jesus drastically changed his life forever, and Paul was transformed, and he experienced the forgiveness of Christ for his life, but, but it doesn't mean that he was able to make the past go away. And so can you imagine with living those sorts of memories every single day? But here's what Paul learned. Here's what he learned about Christ's love and his identity in, the Christ. And he, in Christ. He wrote in Romans 8.38, he says, for I am convinced You want to talk about somebody that knows and understands his identity in Jesus. He says that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, God created you, and he loves you. These things are true for you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter what circumstances or what, what your circumstances may say. But there are two other things, quickly, uh, that we find in Scripture that are true of your identity if you're a follower of Jesus, all right, if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life. So if you've made this decision to step off the throne of your life and to let Jesus occupy that seat instead, here are two other things that Scripture say about you. Number three is this, that God rescued you, that you've been rescued. I mean, if, you, if you're a Christian, here's something I know about you that you once recognized that there was something missing from your life. You, you saw something, you, you recognized something that was broken, it wasn't right, and there was nothing on your own that you could do about it. So at some point in your life, you cried out to the Lord and turned to him like the Apostle Paul did, and God came to meet you in that moment and in those circumstances. See, that's the only difference between a Christ follower and somebody that's not following Christ. I mean, we're all broken. None of us is perfect. But the difference is that some of us realize that we need help that we need a rescuer. And so as a follower of Jesus, what Scripture says, that, you, that, that, that God believed that you were valuable enough, all right, that he would give up his son for you. And so he decided that his only son, Jesus, all right, would die on a cross if that meant that he could spend eternity with you. And so Peter writes this of Jesus and what he did for us. And keep in mind, this is from firsthand experience. He was there. He witnessed the death of Jesus on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he writes, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. He writes, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. See, God waited for you to return to him. But even before that, even before that moment you turned around, that moment that you repented, all right, Scripture says this in Romans 5, 6 through 8, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But then verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, up until uh, recently, we had an unfinished basement in our home. And 
Uh, besides a couple of carpet remnants, uh, it was nothing more than unfinished walls and unfinished ceiling and lots of boxes. And so uh, we decided a few months back that we want to do a little bit of work down there just for another space, also a space for our kids and for our kids' friends to hang out. And so we did this kind of partial finish of our basement. We hired a buddy, and he came in, and he built one wall for us to hide the furnace and the water heater. And uh, we bought some carpet and then hired a painter to come in and rather do anything to the ceiling. We just had him spray everything. And so the walls, uh, the floor joists, all of the wires, all of the duct work, uh, all of the pipes, everything has just been painted, sprayed uh, with this bright white color, and it's really pretty amazing. I mean, if you go down there, it just feels so bright. It feels so clean. It's a brand new space, all right, at least for us. And when you think about it, that's exactly what Christ did for you and me and what his death and his resurrection accomplished for us. His death means that every flaw, his death means that every mistake, every past act, Every sin, every regret that you and I, that we've ever made has been covered bright white. It's been made new. And it was God that said through the prophet Isaiah that though your sins are as red as scarlet, through Jesus they will be as white as snow. He was talking about Jesus. And because of that, here's what we know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 13, that Jesus, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, here's the great news. In Jesus Christ, you get a clean slate. You get a do-over. He's the one who rescues you. And for those of you here today who have never trusted Jesus Christ, he's the only one that can rescue you. He's the only one that can do this work in your life. He created you. He loves you. He rescued you. And finally, here's something else that we know about our identity in Christ. Last thing, number four, is that God adopted you. Uh, if you've trusted Jesus, he adopted you. Romans 8, 15, Paul writes, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit, the gift you received when you trusted Christ brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, get this. In the Roman culture, at the time when Paul writes this, uh, adoption was practiced really in similar ways as it's practiced today, and there were a few specific consequences of adoption. Number one, if you were adopted, the adopted son lost all rights to his old family and gained all the rights uh, as a fully legitimate son or daughter in this brand new family. And so legally, the child got a brand new father. The second thing is this, is that the adopted child also became an heir to his father's new estate, meaning that there was an inheritance that he would receive or she would receive. And then finally, the old life of the adopted son or daughter was completely wiped out. For instance, if there were any debts, those debts were legally canceled. They were wiped out as if they had never been. And so if you had student loans back then, totally gone, all right, in any moment like that. The point was, though, that the adopted son or daughter was regarded as a new person entering a new life which the past had nothing to do. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, used this illustration because of all of these same consequences are true of us, those of us who are adopted children of God. Because of Jesus, we've got a new father. We've gained the rights that come with being God's child. Your debts are wiped out. Your sins are forgiven. We've been given a new life, a new confirmed identity as co-heirs with Christ and a new hope waiting for us in heaven. 
And on the other side, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never trusted Jesus with your life, I want to tell you, there's plenty of room for you and God's family as well. And he has the means to care for you. He's patient with you and he desires to invite you into his family as his son or as his daughter. And maybe today's the day that you make a decision like that with your life to surrender to him. But for those of you that are following Jesus, this idea is key to understanding who you are. You know, because when you start to slip back into old behaviors, you can remind yourself, that's not who I am anymore. I belong to the king. I'm, I've got a great father. I'm a child of God. Or when you start to feel your life slipping into fear or anxiety, you can just tell yourself, you know what, I'm no longer a slave. I don't have to live in fear. I'm a son or a daughter of the most high God or when your enemy starts to accuse you or starts to ask those questions about who you are, you can say it out loud, you can pray it, you can write it in your own journal that God created me, that he loves me, that he rescued me, and that he has adopted me as his son or as his daughter. And if you want to bring glory to God in your life and bear much fruit, if you want to live a successful Christian life, it starts with our identity in Jesus Christ and knowing who you are in him. And I pray that you will be encouraged in your identity in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son, your one and only son, Jesus, to this earth who provided for us an example, a model for how we live our lives. And at the same time, Lord, that you provided him as the ultimate sacrifice to the problem of sin. And because of Jesus, we're not left to pay for our own mistakes and regrets and, and sin on our own, Lord, but that Jesus has paid that price for us. And that what a loving Father that you invite us to trust you, that you invite us to trust Jesus, to accept him as our Savior and friend. And you want to change our lives forever through Jesus. And we just think about how important it is today, and especially today, Lord, to understand and know our identity in Jesus, that we have been found in him, that we have been loved by you, God. And we want to live from that place today. As we think about what we want you to accomplish in us, we want you to secure and strengthen our identity in Jesus Christ so that we can bring you glory and bear fruit with our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.